We're going to continue our series today in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if you want to turn on your Bible or turn in your Bible to Ecclesiastes chapter 2, we're going to look at verses 1 through 11 this morning. In Ecclesiastes, the author, or how he designates himself, the preacher, he's this Solomon-like figure. He's a wealthy king, and not just a little bit wealthy, like he's beyond wealthy. And he's also very wise and knowledgeable. And what's happening here in this book is he's leading us on a journey of how he's looking for significance and satisfaction and meaning in life, and he takes a lot of different pathways to try to find it. And so he takes us on this journey. And so last week, Mark explained that uh, the first stop was uh, him using wisdom and knowledge to try to figure everything out. But he did, he did it without fearing the Lord. He was just trying to think on his own. There was no thought of God. He's just, I'm trying to figure this out. But the fear of the Lord is actually the beginning of wisdom, and he needs that in order to come to the right conclusions. And so it was vanity. It was something that was meaningless. It turned out to not be a good endeavor. So now, today, we're going to look at his second approach. This approach is the pursuit of pleasure and possessions and accomplishment. He's not now thinking with his mind. Now he's just going to take life by the horns and he's going to wrestle with it. And he's going to say, I'm going to get all that I can get out of life and I'm going to make myself happy and glad. And this, maybe this will give me meaning and purpose for my life. But again, he does it without God in view. He's looking under the sun, so to speak. He's looking at the horizontal things of life. He's not looking above the sun. He's not looking to God to show him the way. No, he's just looking at the world and all that it offers. So this morning, Jane's going to read to us, Jane Sutter, Ecclesiastes 2, 1 through 11. Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1 through 11. I said in my heart, come now. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works, I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem, and also my wisdom remained with me. And whatever my, heart, and whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, 
and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Thank you, Jane. Let's pray. Father, we pray very simply today that you would open the eyes of our hearts, that you would help us to see what we really value and treasure and where we seek to find meaning and satisfaction. Father, we pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts so that we could also see Jesus, the one who fully satisfies, the one who is the way and the truth and the life. And so, Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So as Mark said last week, actually this scripture passage was very instrumental in the process of me coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Not too many people have Ecclesiastes as part of their uh, story, but it was certainly mine. And unlike Ruth in her testimony that she had just shared, where she sort of had an orientation towards God, I actually wasn't raised that way. And at a very early age, I had an orientation away from God. And so a little bit of my background is that starting in middle school, I sought meaning and purpose primarily through success and popularity. So I threw myself into basketball and track and field. I did not do well in school, but I cheated instead. But I also was sexually immoral. I was hooking up with girls. I was having friends with benefits, all the common lingo that you would say and hear today. I was getting drunk and I was getting high and I was living a pretty immoral and debauched lifestyle. And yet in my mind, I thought, wow, I'm winning. This is the way it's supposed to work because that's what everything I heard around me said was good. And so that's how things started out. I thought these things would make me happy. I thought they would bring me joy and satisfaction. Maybe there are some of you here today who have that same mentality or were raised the same way. I want to encourage you, listen carefully to the words that are preached here today from God's Word because God has a good word for you today. There's something better and there's something more, and His name is Jesus. And my story after middle school continued on through high school and then to college. I went to James Madison University. And after college, so by the time I was 25, this is sort of what my, my life looked like. I'd had two really good jobs. I worked at a bank and then I worked for NASDAQ, investigating insider trading. So I had a job down on K Street, which was back in the day pretty prestigious. I worked hard and I was climbing the ladder. I was getting fast promotions and I was getting big raises as it went along. And I made a lot of money. And so I could go places and I could do pretty much whatever I wanted to do. And every time somebody had a good idea for more fun, I raised my hand and said, I'm in. Let's go for it. Let's do it. And so I would go on great vacations. We'd go water skiing in Canada or go to my friend's sailboat down in Miami. One summer when I was 25, we rented an entire house in Dewey Beach for the whole summer just so that we could go down every weekend. We didn't even go during the week. We just went down on the weekends. And so we were just spending money lavishly on our pleasures. And that's how I was living my life. I bought nice clothes. I bought my suits at Brooks Brothers. I drove around in a 300ZX turbo sports car. Oh, that was my pride and joy. I was able to live in a house in McLean, so I wanted that prestigious address. I joined a health club that was very prestigious. I had a VIP pass to the Four Seasons nightclub downtown. I worked hard and I played hard. And I was winning. 
I mean, in the eyes of the world, like, check off the boxes. This is the way to go. And so I pursued all that the world said I should pursue for joy and for pleasure. But here's the catch. In the end, none of it brought any lasting satisfaction or joy. Actually, in fact, there were some great sorrows along the way in living life for yourself and without God. You see, living for yourself and apart from God offers many immediate pleasures. I did have a lot of fun. And some of the things weren't sinful. They were just fun, but the sin was fun too. But what sin doesn't tell you is that sin has consequences and there's a cost for living your life apart from God. You see, in the end, you're left with nothing but a desire for more and more. Every time you get one car, you find out a friend has a better car, so guess what you want? An even better car. And if your friends and you went down to Dewey Beach, but somebody else got a house at the Outer Banks, well, oh, maybe we need to go do that next year. And so everything was always a one-upsmanship. Everything was always more and more. And it's an exhausting way to live your life because you're never satisfied. Sin, as I said, also comes with consequences. You see, the world doesn't tell you. When it gives all these advertising slogans, you do you, live your best life now, all that stuff, it doesn't tell you about all the consequences that go along with that. If you continue to ignore God and live your own way, trust me, there will be dire consequences. For God's word says that the wages of sin are death. And I'll have more to say about that in just a little bit. What happened was I was empty. I was lonely. I had anxiety. I was filled with guilt and shame for the way that I had lived my life. But it was all kept inside. Nobody would have known because the facade, the persona that I had created was, I'm Mr. Good Time. Let's just have fun. Let's just go for it. But it was all a lie on the inside. And my observation, having walked this way, is that our unsatisfied longings and our unanswered questions about meaning are really spiritual clues that we were made to enjoy something far better. You see, you and I were made not to enjoy the pleasures of this world under the sun. We were made to enjoy the pleasures of the one who made the sun. We were made for God, made to be in a relationship with him, that's where we're going to find meaning. That's where we're going to find purpose. Not in the created, oh, but friends, in the creator. And each and every one of us, we all have an inner craving, a deep desire to find that satisfaction that only God can provide. And this was God's design. You see, I believe that if we were able to find lasting satisfaction in the earthly pleasures, guess what? We would never see our need for God. It's only when we realize that these things don't satisfy that by comparison we say there's got to be something more. And God in his kindness has revealed to us something more. He's revealed himself in the face of Jesus Christ. And so the main point for this message today is that living for pleasure doesn't truly satisfy because only God can. So the first point is the pleasure test. Look back at verse 1. I just want to pull out a few details here. Verse 1 says, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. And then a conclusion. But behold, this was also vanity. 
So how does he start out? He says, I said in my heart, and he uses I, me, my, myself. It gets repeated 40 times in 11 verses. That's exactly how I lived my life. It was all about me. My best friends are me, myself, and I. That's how I live my life. And sometimes in the world that we live in, that's how you can live your life too, where we have this self-focus in how we live. And so his starting point is himself and not God, and that's always going to be the problem. Though he knows about God, he wasn't dumb. It's just like kids that are raised in a church. They know a lot about God, you guys. You know a lot of truth. But when push comes to shove, what the preacher did was he decided to try to figure this out without God. He didn't trust God to give him the answers that he needed. And so it becomes a faith issue. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. And so he creates a test. I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. Now, this is like the wealthiest guy you can imagine. He's, he's making a test to give himself pleasure, things that will bring him joy and happiness. He says, enjoy yourself. And so just think about it for a moment. Think about the wealthiest person in the world, the smartest guy around. Just think of the billionaires with their yachts and their villas and, and all the, the, the birthday parties with the Rolling Stones playing at it and all that. That's, that's this guy. Like, he's at that level of, of partying. Like, he puts me to shame. Right? So he's at this nth degree level. And this is what he's saying. Cut it loose. Just go for it. This will make you happy. Because he was seeking the good life. He was living by the motto that he who has the most toys wins. And so he had a green light to just go for it. Take your best shot. But the conclusion, and we'll talk more about this later, is that it was vanity. Vanity it was a vapor. It was a mist that just goes away. He declares that it's meaningless. You see, you can have it all and still not be satisfied. And Jesus said this about the rich young ruler. He said, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. Just starting to get to the heart. And then again with his disciples, he said, for what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? So you can have all the stuff on the outside, you can have all the stuff that the world says you can have, and you can be absolutely bankrupt on the inside. But because we all like to put a good face forward, we usually don't tell anybody how we really feel. And there's a loneliness and a despair that goes along with that way of living. But this is how the world says we should live. And my question would be, how's that working out? When you look around at the world that we live in and the people who are the most famous and the most popular and have the most toys and the most money, aren't their names also associated with all the scandals and the broken marriages and the drug addictions and everything else that goes along with it? You see, those things don't get celebrated. Actually, sometimes they do, but for all the wrong reasons. It's just popularity, good or bad. But it doesn't end well for those people. And so the preacher now gives a self-guided tour of his self-indulgent lifestyle. So look at verses 2 through 8, living for pleasure. And so, again, these are just the common areas where I think you and I can relate to these passages because they're basically things that you and I give ourselves to, just not as big as he could go, right? So these are the common areas where we seek to find satisfaction 
So the first one in verse 2, he talks about his attitude, an attitude of laughter. You might go, well, what does that mean? It just means that he was lighthearted. He just didn't really care. He didn't care about all the other broken stuff going on in the world. All he cared about was himself, and he just wanted to be able to laugh at the days to come. Isn't life grand? Look at all that I have. Look what I can do. Look who I can sleep with. Look where I can go. Look what I can build. Look at all these different things. Ha, ha, ha. He's just having a good old time. Back in the 80s, there was a song, Don't Worry, Be Happy. And God would whistle a little tune along with it. So the old people, they're all laughing, right? But currently, it's that you-do-you mentality, isn't it? Right? Just enjoy yourself. You don't have to care about other people. So then it goes on in verse 3, alcohol. It says he cheered his body with wine. Now, he wasn't crazy. He still had his wits about him, so he didn't just become just some reckless person. No, he actually very purposely thought about when he was going to get drunk and how he was going to do it, right? So he wasn't just throwing everything to the wind because he had a lot of things he also wanted to accomplish. He couldn't just be a deadbeat. So he was trying to balance the two things of being successful but also partying like a big dog, like he just really wanted to get after it. And so he cheered his body with wine. And it says this was folly, and that's what he laid hold of. You only live once, sort of the YOLO mentality, right? Live for the moment. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you die. And he throws himself more and more into this. And he was good at it. So then he talks about his accomplishments. He says in verse 4, I made great works, houses and vineyards, gardens and parks, and pools for watering. So in other words, he was a very successful architect and builder, construction company owner, like he's building and designing all this immense, you know, just amazing stuff. The guy had real talent. And he's pouring it all into himself. And he had power. Verse 7, I bought male and female slaves and had slaves born in his house. Slavery, the practice where people made in the image of God, are treated as property. They're exploited for the benefit of another. And that's what he took advantage of. He had all the power, so he said, I'll have my slaves. I'll even have them born in my house. Verse 7, and he had great possessions, more than anyone before him. Do you know anybody like that? Anybody who just has a lot of great stuff? More than anyone before him. He was at the pinnacle. He was at the top. Verse 8, great wealth, silver, gold, treasure of kings. Verse 8, continuing on, and great delights. Singers, so he was going to concerts all the time, actually hosting the concerts at one of his villas, right? He had concubines. This Solomon-type figure, Solomon himself, it said, had 700 wives, 300 concubines. We're not talking about small proportions. We're talking about epic proportions of indulgence. And this is what he gave himself to. And here's a fascinating thing about these verses. Do you notice that everything that he did and acquired was all plural? He didn't just do it once. He didn't have just one house and one garden and one concert. He had many of everything. And so this gives us a picture of the self-indulgent lifestyle. And let me go back to my story. So this was the pattern of my life. Reckless abandonment for fun. I still had an eye towards I wanted to be successful, but I also wanted to have as much fun as I possibly could. I had that sort of let the good times roll mentality. 
but I also had little regard for the consequences or for how my actions affected other people. Like when I would joke with people, and I like to laugh, I like to have a lot of fun, but back in those days when I joked with people, it was usually at other people's expense. You see, I always liked to put other people down because that would get a laugh with everybody else. But I never really put myself down. You see, I put myself on a pedestal. You were just fodder for my entertainment. You were fodder for my holding court with people and just making people laugh and being funny. Uh, several years after high school, two guys uh, that rode the bus with me, they're both pretty big guys, they're brothers, and they told me that they were terrified of me in middle school and in high school because we rode the same bus. And truth be told, I was four foot 11 when I went into high school. I mean, I was tiny. And these big guys, they were, in all that, they were terrified of me. Why? Because I had a wicked tongue. If you wore the wrong clothes or said the wrong thing, or I just didn't, I woke up that day and I just didn't like you that day, I would just pick on you. And I would just get everybody around you to laugh at you. Not with you, but at you and at your expense. I cheered my body with wine and beer and shots and tequila. You see, I wasn't crazy, but I was getting drunk and I was making terrible and dangerous choices. Numerous times driving up and down Georgetown Pike or on Old Dominion, I grew up in McLean, driving drunk, swerving on and off the road. It's a, it's a miracle that I did not kill anyone else or myself in living this way. And yet I didn't think there was anything wrong with it. We would actually regale ourselves of what a great time we had the night before when we would get together the next day. I had these great jobs, but when you live a lifestyle like that, you have to keep working harder to keep going up the ladder, and it never stops. There's always another promotion to get. There's always another job to apply for. And you know what? That's exhausting. You think you're winning, and slowly, day by day, you're actually losing, and it becomes a grind, and you lose the joy in your work. And I had possessions and power, but as I said, they were just tools for my pleasure. And the result was I had what the world said was good, but it was never good enough because there was always something new. There was always something better. And as Ecclesiastes says, it was a chasing after the wind. Have you ever tried to chase the wind? Ever tell the kids to go chase the wind? It's kind of a novel idea, isn't it? And just kind of randomly, you know, oh, yeah, I got it. <laughs> no, you don't ever get it. And that's the point. You expend all this energy for nothing. And I think that's what he came to the result of in his own life. You see, I envied people who had more than I had. I was jealous of them. I was just sad that I couldn't have as much fun that they had. And so I lost sight of the pleasures. They were no longer pleasurable to me because I was more aware of what I didn't have because other people had it. Do you see the insidious nature of sin? How it can take something good and then just distort it so that you lose your way. And the saddest part of all this for me was that I lost sight of who I was as a person made in the image of God. And I think when I was a little kid, I was a pretty nice little kid and actually liked to do things around the house and care for people and do stuff. But as I started to indulge my life of self-pleasure, I lost my way and I became a very arrogant, self-centered, self-focused brat. I just live for me. And if you don't make me happy, I'll just move you out of the way. But that's a sad way to live. 
and I increasingly cared less and less for others. Life was about me. There was sort of a, a, a name for this when I was growing up. It was called Vinnyland. And that's what it was. And I was the proprietor of Vinnyland. I owned it. All the amusements were for me. And everything else was a haunted house for you because I was just going to have fun. And it didn't matter to me who got harmed in the way. You see, living for pleasure is seductive. There are elements where we do derive pleasure from these things. And it's a temptation for all of us, isn't it? But let me ask you a question. Are the things other than God that you're pursuing, do they really bring satisfaction? Do they really bring joy? Do they really bring you that confidence that you understand who you are and how you were made and how you should live your life? I can tell you the answer is going to be no to that. And yet, by way of contrast, let's just pause for a moment. Let's think about Jesus for a second. Jesus had it all, didn't he? He was in heaven with the Father. He had anything you could desire at his fingertips. But what did he do? He set it all aside, put it all off, and came down and humbled himself and became like you and me. Imagine the gap. Like it's one gap for us to get to this Solomon type person. But if you look at the gap between what Jesus had and even what the Solomon person had, it doesn't even compare. Like he's so much greater in terms of what he had. And so the distance he traveled was so much greater too. You see, Jesus left heaven. He had it all, but he emptied himself. He became poor so that through his poverty, his spiritual poverty, we might become rich spiritually. You see, he hung on a cross, bearing our sins, naked, ashamed, humiliated, tortured on a cross so that selfish people like you and me could be added back into the family of God. That's amazing. That is, it's so mind-blowing to think that the Son of God would joyfully go to the cross for people like you and me and you stop and think, well, what did I do to deserve it? And the answer is nothing. The only thing that you and I bring to our salvation is our sin. Everything else is all of grace. And so the story goes on here. He wraps it up. This preacher provides the results of the experiment. He talks about the futility of pleasure, and that's verses 9 and 11. He clearly had achieved more than any of us ever could imagine, but it didn't work out for him, and trust me, it's not going to work out for you any different, right? And now there is the pleasure paradox in verse 10. He says, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward. And, and friends, there is a good reward for working hard, and it's okay to enjoy the benefits and the blessings that God gives to us. Hard work, excelling at work and school, enjoying blessings from God are all good, so I don't want you to hear what I'm not saying. But what I am saying, what's not good, is when we think that in themselves they will bring us lasting joy and peace. You see, the creation itself was never meant 
to completely satisfy. And so what's the preacher's conclusion in verse 11? And this is the verse that actually really impacted me. It said, then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. It's like he climbed up the ladder of success, all the accomplishments, all the pleasures, and he gets all the way up to the top, having achieved everything, and he looks over the edge and he says, there's nothing there. It's all meaningless. And he comes back down the ladder and he pens these words. And he goes, guys, been there, done that. It's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. There's nothing to be gained. You see, at this point, the preacher realizes that he was looking in the wrong place for true meaning and purpose. This is not where he was going to find his joy. And so, as I said in my story, so picture this. I'm 25 years old, and I'd already accomplished all these things. So I was, I was rolling. I had a good head start. I was moving. And I was heading off to grad school in England to get my master's degree in finance, which I did, and that was part of my plan. But all of these pleasures that I pursued, and I mentioned how sometimes they have consequences and how the wages of sin are death. Well, one of the girls that I was sleeping with at the time, she became pregnant. And that was a, sort of a wrinkle in my plan. Like, I wasn't ready to be a dad. I, I was ready to move off and go overseas. Like, okay, that's just getting in the way of my pleasure. And so I thought it would be a nice guy and say, well, you know, I'll just let you do what, what you think is the right thing to do. And so, in other words, instead of doing the right thing, I abdicated my responsibility. I was a coward. I just thought about me, and I didn't think about the consequences for an unborn child or the effect that this would have on this woman. I just thought about, well, what's going to be best for me? And so I pulled out my Chase Gold MasterCard, and I handed it to her, and she went off and had an abortion. And see, this isn't the part of the story that ever gets said in the advertising. You do you, live your best life now. See, none of that stuff ever gets talked about on the other side. The guilt, the shame, the sadness, the death, the murder that took place. And it was a pivotal moment in my life. You see, in the midst of those few weeks, right around about heading off to school, having this happen a few weeks beforehand, God revealed to me the emptiness and the shallowness of my life. I wasn't who I thought I was. I was a vain, selfish pleasure seeker. And to cap it off, and this is the part that really became overwhelming for me, brought me great distress, is that I actually had to face up to the fact that I'm a murderer. And I would just say, you don't ever want to be in those shoes. You don't want to be there. The guilt and the shame that's associated with that, it's palpable. You could feel it every day. And I was undone. My life at that point was being turned upside down. I didn't know who I was, what I was all about. I had become so different than the person who I thought I was. And it had happened one degree at a time. One choice at a time. One party at a time. One bad choice after another. And slowly over time, you don't drift towards godliness. You just drift ever farther and farther away from God. 
And so that's what happened. My self-perception got turned upside down. And for the person who used to mock Christians, my brother and I used to, one of my brothers, we would go out in front of my house, at my parents' house in McLean, when they were having prayer meetings there, and they were singing praise songs, sort of 70s charismatic Jesus movement stuff, and they're all waving their hands and doing all that stuff. So my brother and I would be out in the front yard, and we would start, start dancing around, and we were just mocking them. We just made fun of them. We thought, you guys are just so stupid. Don't you see everything that we have? And you guys have got nothing. But in that moment, surprise, surprise, I realized that they had everything that I needed and I had nothing. It was hard. It was really hard. So where do you go when your life gets turned upside down? Where do you go with those hard questions in life? Like, why am I here and how do I find meaning? And will I ever have purpose and joy in my life? Where do you go? And I mean that purposefully, like you individually, not you plural. I would just encourage you, think about where are you going to find meaning and satisfaction in life? Because if it's in anything other than God, your end is going to be similar to mine. You won't have the exact same story, but the outcome will be similar. When you consider the work of your hands and all that you toil to achieve, it's all going to be meaningless. A chasing after the wind. There's going to be nothing gained under the sun. The claim of this text is to bring us to the point where we begin to realize that this type of commitment to living for ourselves will never satisfy. Friends, if we leave God out of the picture, if we stay under the sun, then we'll be fools like I was a fool. But if we behold God in all his glory and we view life above the sun, friends, there is hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ the gospel that points us up to God. You see, God has a plan to save and satisfy lost and confused people like you and me. God the Father sent his beloved son Jesus to save us and to satisfy us. You see, what the preacher pursued, Jesus was tempted by, but he resisted it. He cast it aside because there was something better to live for, and that was for the glory of his Father. And to accomplish redemption, Jesus did not live for his own pleasure. No, for the joy set before him endured a cross, was crucified for you and for me. And friends, through the gospel invitation, we are offered total satisfaction in our crucified and risen Lord Jesus Christ. How does that happen? Well, he forgives our sins. He welcomes us into the family of God. We are accepted, loved, cared for, given meaning and purpose. We now have an orientation and a direction in life that leads us to God so that we can live our life for the praise of his glory. Friends, this is the meaning of life. This is the true meaning of life. Whatever else you and I could have lived for or are living for, nothing's going to compare to living this way. This is what we're to pursue. And the life verse that came out of this for me came from Psalm 37, 4. And think of the juxtaposition from how I lived my life to then having God intervene and in how my life was changed. The life verse, 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Do you see how the order of operations got changed? 
Delight yourself in whatever you want and see how it works out for you versus delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. You see, true satisfaction is found when we abide in God and when God abides in us. David understood this in Psalm 16. He says, and listen, it's up on the board. You make known to me the path of life. Anybody want to know the path of life? Yeah, God can tell you that, okay? In your presence, there is fullness of joy. In other words, you're never really going to get joy anywhere else except in God's presence. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And it's not just pleasures now, it's pleasures for all eternity. Jesus explained this to his disciples in John 15 when he said this. He was explaining to them about the kingdom of God and about discipleship. And he says, these things I have spoken to you, now listen to this, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Have you ever stopped to think about that, that that's Jesus' goal for you? Is that his joy, the joy that he experiences with the Father would be your joy? We live in a world filled with anxiety and sadness and stress. Joy can be very elusive, and yet joy is offered to us freely in Jesus Christ that his joy would be in us and that our joy would be full. Thankfully, my story had a good ending. People like my brother David and his wife Jennifer and my parents, they were faithful to preach the gospel to me. And I still owe them a lot because I was not an easy person to witness to. I was a handful. I thought I knew all the answers and not only that, but materially, I always just was like, yeah, whatever, I'm winning, you're losing. I was just so arrogant, but they were faithful. And by God's grace, I was able to repent and become a follower of Jesus Christ. And because of Christ, I'm a new creation. I can stand up here today. Yes, I have regrets for how I live my life, but here's the sweet thing about this. I'm not ashamed. I'm not ashamed to tell you what my life has been like. Why? Because the one that hung on the cross took my shame for me. All of it. As Ruth said in her testimony, not just some of it, not just for a moment. All the guilt, all the shame, all the regret, all the sadness. Jesus bore it all for you and me. I can't describe to you how valuable that is, but it's more valuable than anything in the creation that you will ever find value. It's unbelievable what we have in Christ. The orientation of my life changed radically. I now live for him who died for me instead of for myself. I don't do it perfectly. I'm still a work in progress. But experiencing God and walking with him is unimaginably better. You know, every good gift comes from God. So it's not that we can't receive gifts. It's just don't make it your life ambition to pursue them. But every good gift comes from God. And I think about God has blessed me 31 years with a, just a wonderful wife. My kids, my family. The joy it is to be part of this church, to grow together, to be the people of God. With all of our warts and all of our ups and downs and all the other crazy stuff that goes on in church, I can't thank God enough for you. These are the brothers and sisters that God has placed in my life, and I'm grateful for you. And he's given me a house and cars and so many other blessings from God. 
But along the way, I learned that it's better to give than to receive. It's better to serve than to be served. It's better to be generous than accumulate things for yourself. And humility is much better than being proud. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you're here today, I would love to talk to you afterwards about your story or go out for coffee some other time and just help you understand that what I'm telling you today is actually the truth. Just like the preacher was saying all this was meaningless, he was trying to teach people like, hey, learn from me, right? I'm one of the dumb guys. You can tell me a million times not to do it and guess what I'm going to do? Yeah, I'm going to do it, right? Well, I want to encourage you, don't make the mistakes that I made. I'll just be blunt about it. If you're in a season of life and you're checking things out, don't make those mistakes. It will not satisfy. And for our brothers and sisters here in churches uh, that have a, a testimony that says, well, I don't have one of those radical testimonies, and you feel a little bit bad about your testimony, well, I want to tell you that I rejoice with you that you don't have a testimony like mine. I really want you to hear that because God has spared you so much misery and sadness, and it's an evidence of God's great love for you that you didn't have to experience what I had to experience in order to come into the kingdom of God. And so I rejoice with you. But as I close here, he said, well, what do we do with this message? Well, one, we can search our hearts and find out, Lord, what's going on in my heart? What do I need to change? What do I need to do? Um, and I want to encourage that. But also, I want to encourage us evangelistically. You see, the world that we live in is filled with people like me who needed to hear the good news of Jesus and also to see it lived out. And I want to urge you, don't give up on people like me. Don't give up. I don't care how many times they're rude to you and just make it hard for you. Oftentimes, the people that are most resistant to God live with a mentality that the best defense is a good offense. And so they'll push you away. But sometimes the harder they push is indicative of how much they actually really need you to break in. Don't give up on them. And share the love of Christ with them in word and in deed because we were all at some point lost and confused and we all need the hope of Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah. Amen.